This is the Green Street News, the environmental health show and podcast, Patty and Doug Wood and our network of science and medical experts. Welcome back. On this week's show, we're going to talk about man's relentless but ultimately futile effort to outsmart nature. In this case, we'll be talking about the development of a chemical pesticide called glyphosate and how its release into the world has triggered significant unintended consequences, including massive crop resistance and a link to autism and other human health problems, but which, thanks in part to our profit-oriented government, remains on store shelves today. That and Patty with the week's environmental health headlines all coming up. Stay with us. Since the beginning of time, man has been trying to outsmart nature. Well, actually, I take that back. Since the Industrial Revolution and the age of capitalism turned agriculture into a profit-making enterprise, man has been trying to outsmart nature. Up until then, man had been living in harmony with nature. But as our understanding of modern chemistry began to grow in the 18th and 19th centuries, we discovered some of the secrets of the universe. We began to understand what the world was actually made of and how the building blocks of nature made life itself possible. As we discovered more about how our world works, the idea began to grow in the minds of scientists that we could not only figure out how the world worked, but how it could work better. For some, it was how to cure diseases or how to prevent disease in the first place. For others, it was how combinations of chemicals not found in the natural world could produce new materials with amazing properties that could help mankind. For some, of course, it was how the forces of nature could be harnessed for war. And for others, it was how we could use nature or change nature to make more money. And that's where our story today begins, with the development of a new miracle chemical, a unique laboratory creation called an organophosphorus compound that could interfere with the growth of plants. A miracle plant killer, essentially, that was harmless to humans. It's universally kills plants, so it's wonderful herbicide works so well, right? And it's like, oh my God, and it's completely safe. I mean, it's like, what's not to like about that, right? As long as you think it's completely safe, it's by far the best herbicide you could possibly imagine. It's just that you're wrong. You know, it's not completely safe. In fact, it's probably worse than many of the ones that have been regulated. You know, people can just freely buy it, but they shouldn't be able to. That's Dr. Stephanie Seneff, a senior research scientist at the MIT Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory with a keen interest in biology and how things work. Dr. Seneff was curious about the rise in cases of autism and what could be causing it. I got interested in autism and I was seeing the rates were going up steadily every year. They still are, by the way. We just got new numbers, worse than ever. It's not news, you know, the media doesn't even care to talk about it. Um, if those rates continue to go up the way they are, it, we're basically toast, I think. It's going to be such a burden and women are going to be afraid to have children because there'll be such a high risk of autism. They'll just decide, maybe I just won't risk that, you know. I think in the future, it's just going to get really bad. And um, I wanted to figure out what was causing it. And I suspected vaccines, actually. And of course, there were reasons why I suspected that from many, many people who were saying their child got the MMR vaccine and after that, they just were never well again. 
and I can see how MMR could be connected to autism. But I looked at a lot of things and I actually switched my career at MIT to be focused on health and toxic chemicals in the environment. I was able to make a hot switch and suddenly be working on something very different from what I had been doing before. Because a lot of people who would like to be doing this research can't because they've got, you know, their, their university has ties. That's another thing is MIT doesn't get, we get a lot of money from pharma, so that's an issue, but we don't get any from Monsanto. Many of the agriculture universities who should be doing the work to figure out what's going on with glyphosate, many of them are heavily funded by the agrochemical industry, so their hands are tied. Dr. Seneff knew that many autistic children had digestive problems and inability to process fat or other foods. Free to explore her ideas without corporate interference, Dr. Seneff suspected that something in the food supply might be interfering with the communication between the gut and the brain. Many, many people have realized there's an incredible connection. It's so fascinating. And people call the gut the second brain, too. You know, it's going to be referred to it as the second brain because it has a whole neurological system that's different from what you have in the rest of the body. It's more like a brain than like the, the neurological system of the body. Many, many communications through the nervous system between the gut and the brain. It's really fascinating. Let's pause here for a minute and talk about the ubiquity of glyphosate, or Roundup, its trade name. It is by far the most popular pesticide in the world, with more than 10 million tons of the chemical sprayed onto fields of crops from corn to wheat to sugar. That's the equivalent of 2,500 Olympic-sized swimming pools. It's enough to spray nearly half a pound of Roundup on every cultivated acre of land in the world. So it's everywhere, and residues are found in virtually all commercial foods. It's all over the food supply. The United States government doesn't bother to test. They've done very, very few tests to see if it's actually in the food. But fortunately, other people have tested environmental you know, activists like Ben Honeycutt, and they have found glyphosate at high levels in all kinds of foods that are especially popular with children, like Oreo cookies and, and uh, oatmeal cookies. Uh, Cheerios, um, goldfish crackers. I mean, these are all very popular foods with young children and they're loaded with glyphosate. It's very disturbing. And autistic kids have trouble with digesting fats because the bile acids are deficient because these enzymes are suppressed. These enzymes also activate vitamin D and the autistic kids often have vitamin D deficiency. So it was like all these things were working out, you know, as far as sensitivities to foods that would be contaminated with glyphosate, you know, gluten intolerance, for example. Wheat is sprayed with glyphosate right before the harvest. So the gluten gets the glyphosate contamination that then messes up the ability to digest the gluten because the bacteria, there's these bacteria in the gut that are the lactobacillus. They have several different enzymes that specialize in a particular amino acid called proline that's very difficult to deal with. So these bacteria provide extra enzymes to the host to help to break down the gluten. But those bacteria get killed by the glyphosate, so the gluten doesn't get broken down. Milk is interesting because then Honeycutt, she has moms across America. She had a bunch of women donate breast milk to be tested for glyphosate, and they found glyphosate, I think, in something like a third of the samples. And then after she did that, of course, she published, she didn't publish it in the peer-reviewed journal, but she published it. And of course, the industry immediately was up in arms. And so they did their own study of cow's milk. And the first thing they did was they precipitated out the protein. They took away the protein, and then they tested the rest of it, and they didn't find any glyphosate. Well, of course they didn't, because they took it out with the protein. 
And they did that because they knew they needed to do that or else they would find it. And of course, if you don't, if you don't digest the protein, you don't find it either. So there are ways you can trick people into thinking your product is free of glyphosate when it's not. So Monsanto, the manufacturer of glyphosate, is busy trying to prove that glyphosate isn't as bad as people think and isn't actually in the food people are eating. But their own research showed that wasn't true. Using the Freedom of Information Act, a colleague of Dr. Seneff's got hold of a study that had been done by Monsanto itself, this time with sunfish. The question was, does glyphosate accumulate in the tissues? That was the question they wanted to find out. That's an important question to answer because you want to say it just goes in, goes out, everything's good. Does it accumulate? And so they, they exposed these bluegill sunfish to radio labeled glyphosate so they could track the radio label. So they could un- understand that glyphosate was there if they saw, or a breakdown product was there because they saw the radio label. And then they took tissue samples from the fish. And sure enough, there it was, radio label. I would say the Monsanto researchers who did the early studies knew already before it ever got approved that it was very peculiar and very toxic in weird ways that they didn't understand. But they managed to sort of hide that and get it and get it approved by the EPA. It was first released on the market in 1974 uh, in the United States as an herbicide, and people were using it in the gardens as well to kill the weeds. And uh, Monsanto had found some very interesting things in their studies, which they managed to, um, you know, not reveal. And eventually, my collaborator, Anthony Samsel, was able to get a huge amount of materials through the Freedom of Information Act from the government, um, documents that were unpublished, to show that they really knew back then. But as far as the public is concerned, the government seems to think it's a wonderful chemical, kills all plants except for those that have been engineered through genetic engineering to resist it. And it's completely harmless to humans. This is the message we get. And it's such a wonderful chemical, we don't have to regulate it at all. People could just go right down to the hardware store, the garden store, and buy some Roundup, no problem, you know, without any kind of registration. And women can use it. Parents could use it on their lawns while their child is playing in the lawn. Nobody would think twice about that in many cases. I mean, people just don't realize it's so toxic. That's one of the problems. So while it was true that most of the glyphosate ingested by humans was excreted, some also was being absorbed into tissue. And that's where the trouble began. I had been studying autism, as I said, for five years. September of 2012, I was at a conference And uh, Professor Don Huber, who's a retired professor from Purdue University, expert on plants, um, he gave a talk at this conference and the talk was on glyphosate. And I didn't know what glyphosate was. I'm embarrassed to admit, 2012, I didn't know what it was. Of course, I knew Roundup, um, but I didn't know what glyphosate was. So I thought, well, that looks interesting. I'll take take a look. And it was a two-hour presentation. And I was on the edge of my seat. By the end of that, I was like, wow, I found it. I found the answer. I was that, it was that clear. And it was because I already knew a lot about autism and I knew the autistic kids had a lot of problems with their gut. And I was looking for something in the food. I felt it has to be something in the food was what I was thinking. And I knew they also had issues with minerals, you know, that minerals could be both toxic and deficient with these autistic kids, problems with manganese, problems with iron and um, food sensitivities, you know, lots of allergies. So many things besides their brain problems that, that were manifested a lot having to do with the gut. And this is what my book is about, really. That's the centerpiece of my book, is the proposal. You could still call it a theory, although I think it's basically been proven by Monsanto that glyphosate has a unique mechanism of toxicity, which is to substitute for glycine, the amino acid glycine, by mistake during protein synthesis. 
So people who know something about proteins, they're assembled as sequences of amino acids like beads on a string. They're synthesized according to the famous you know, DNA code. Watson Cricker discovered this DNA code, which is just four letters put three ways. So you have a three-letter sequence that codes for glycine, for example. So when the protein is being assembled, it's, it's like a machine, it's like a computer, you know, reading off the code and then putting in the right one. It gets to the code for glycine and it sees a glyphosate molecule close by. It says, oh, there's glycine, it puts it in. Because glyphosate is a glycine, it's a complete glycine molecule, except that it has extra material stuck on its nitrogen atom. So the body thinks the glyphosate molecule is a glycine molecule and sticks it in the DNA of the enzyme. Biology is a little bit complicated, but, <laughs> but it's what happens with EPSP synthase, which is the enzyme that glyphosate famously disrupts in the plants to kill them, and also in the gut microbes. It, kill, it messes up the gut microbes by disrupting this really, really important enzyme for the plants and for the microbes, an enzyme that human cells don't have, and that's the argument they use to say that we're not sensitive to it. Humans may not have the enzyme that is affected by glyphosate, but a lot of the bacteria in our gut does have that enzyme. The scientists at Monsanto argued that theoretically, humans shouldn't be affected by exposure to glyphosate, but apparently they didn't think about the bacteria we depend on. Glyphosate may not be the only culprit in the alarming rise in the incidence of autism, but it certainly appears to play a key role. So then, if it's in our food supply, what can parents do? According to Stephanie Seneff, diet is critical. Well, clearly certified organic is, is one of the things you really need to look for. Not just non-GMO, but certified organic as a label. And it's not perfect. It doesn't mean it doesn't contain glyphosate. It, because it, it has been found in certified organic food, not because they, they might not have used it at all, but it's just around so much in the rain, in the neighbor's farm. You know, you really can't avoid it in this country. So even certified organic is not 100% glyphosate free, but generally the levels are much, much lower and often they do test negative. So certified organic is probably the most important thing any mother can do, period. But certainly if you have an autistic child, make sure you feed them only certified organic food. There are some ideas that some of my friends have had. Naturopaths encourage people to take fulvic acid and humic acid, which is organic matter from the soil. The claim is that that could, could trap the glyphosate and take it out through the feces, or passively, there might even be some enzymes in there that could break it down. There's certain bacteria that are able to, only a few bacteria are able to metabolize glyphosate, but there are some strains of acetobacter that can do that. And so it's possible that if you're eating apple cider vinegar or sauerkraut, you know, some of these fermented foods, that you could be eating bacteria that are able to metabolize, which would be fantastic because that would actually get rid of it rather than just pushing it out to some, somebody else's problem, you know? <laughs> so those are two things that I, I have seen. And of course, sulfur. Sulfur is super important in the diet. A lot of people have sulfur deficiency. Many people have sulfur sensitivities, which I think are due to the glyphosate messing up their sulfur metabolism. So if you get rid of the glyphosate, you might find your sulfur uh, sensitivity would go away. You could go back to eating sulfur foods for people who have that problem. Very important to eat sulfur-containing foods. So I eat a sulfur-rich diet. Dr. Stephanie Seneff, Senior Research Scientist at the MIT Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory and author of Toxic Legacy, How the Weed Killer Glyphosate is Destroying Our Health and the Environment. Patty and I will be right back with the week's headlines. Don't go anywhere.
All right, Patty, so what's in the news this week? First one is from Al Jazeera, and it is entitled, Chili's Desert Has Become the Dumping Ground for Fashion Leftovers. A desert. Yeah. That's what Listen she said? to this. It's so fascinating. All right. A mountain of discarded clothing, including Christmas sweaters and ski boots, makes for a strange sight in Chile's Atacama Desert, the driest desert in the world, which is increasingly suffering from pollution created by fast fashion. The social impact of rampant consumerism in the clothing industry, such as child labor and low wages, is well known, but its disastrous effect on the environment is way less publicized. Chile has long been a hub of secondhand and unsold clothing made in China or Bangladesh and passing through Europe, Asia, or the United States before arriving in Chile, where it is resold around Latin America. Some 59,000 tons of clothing arrive each year at a port in northern Chile. Clothing merchants from the nation's capital, Santiago, buy some, and some is smuggled out to other Latin American countries. But more than half that cannot be sold end up in rubbish dumps in the desert. Franklin Zepeda, the founder of Ecofibra, a company that makes insulation panels using discarded clothing, said, quote, The problem is that the clothing is not biodegradable and has chemical products, so it is not accepted in the municipal landfills. I wanted to stop being the problem and start being the solution, he said. This is also a water problem. To make a single pair of jeans requires 2,000 gallons of water. According to a 2019 UN report, global clothing production doubled between 2000 and 2014, and the industry is responsible for 20% of total water waste on the globe. Holy smoke. Clothing, either synthetic or treated with chemicals, can take 200 years to biodegrade and is as toxic as discarded tires or plastics. Whether it is left out in the open or buried underground, it pollutes the environment, releasing pollutants into the air or underground water channels. This is insane. First of all, I don't think of, of South mm -hmm. America as having these giant deserts, but of course they do. Uh -huh. Especially um, Chile. Uh -huh. 59,000 tons of clothing. Clothing doesn't weigh that much. To get 59,000 tons of clothing, that's a lot of clothing that's coming in in addition to the clothing that I suppose that they're making in Chile. Right. But I mean, just just look at the amount of clothing that people buy in cheap stores, right? Yeah. And then they discard it you know, almost instantly because it's got a problem. It doesn't fit well. It's not the fashion. Or, you, know, I think it's, that's, that's... you know, it's not constructed properly. And so, you know, it's just not something that people hang on to the way we used to with clothing. We were talking the other day about how, how people used to make their clothes. They certainly don't do that anymore. Right. We were talking about department stores where there was always a section or a department, right, that had fabrics and sewing notions. Yeah. Because people sewed. People sewed clothing. People sewed curtains. People sewed things. And that's kind of a thing of the past. I guess so. Anyway, fast fashion has become an environmental problem <laughs> and a fairly significant one that we didn't really think about. No. The pictures, by the way, on the Al Jazeera website, if you want to see what this looks like, it's just unbelievable. These mountains and mountains of clothing and people picking through them to try to find, you know, brands that people will buy and they can resell them. And but it's a, good it's, Lord. It's insane. All right. What else you got? Another really good one from the Associated Press written by Frank Jordans. Uh, the title is Over and Out. Germany switches off the last of its remaining nuclear power plants. Really? Mm -hmm. 
Cool. The slogan, nuclear no thanks, that was once a slogan found on the bumper of many a German car became a reality, as the country has now shut down its three remaining nuclear power plants in line with a long planned transition toward renewable energy. The shutdown of the three nuclear facilities drew cheers from anti-nuclear campaigners outside the three reactors and at rallies in Berlin and Munich. Inside the plants, staff held more somber ceremonies to mark the occasion. Decades of anti-nuclear protests in Germany stoked by the disasters at Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, and Fukushima had put pressure on successive governments to end the use of a technology that critics argue is unsafe and unsustainable. But with other industrialized countries such as the United States, Japan, China, France, and Britain counting on nuclear energy to replace planet-warming fossil fuels, Germany's decision to stop using both has drawn skepticism at home and abroad, as well as unsuccessful last-minute calls to halt the decision. Defenders of atomic energy say fossil fuels should be phased out first as part of global efforts to curb climate change, arguing that nuclear power produces far fewer greenhouse gas emissions and is safe if properly managed. That is (laughs) something you have to comment on because these disasters, especially the Fukushima disaster, happened because of a natural disaster, something that That's you couldn't right. properly manage. That's right. That's exactly what we're talking about in California, at the San Onofre plant, where they've got these casks of radioactive, spent radioactive fuel that are just above the waterline, and they're worried about, you know, tsunamis or other big storms. Right, this is right coming, on the Pacific right Ocean. Right on the Pacific Ocean. Because right. if those things get flooded, you know, the material gets hot, it explodes, we have a, could have a real, real, you know, problem. So, you know, nuclear is safe until it's not. And, you know, it's hard to make them completely safe. Well, I mean, so, for them, for these defenders of, of, of nuclear energy saying that, that it's safe if properly managed. Well, that's, well, the, big that's the big if, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Okay, it, let me okay. just finish here. The German government has acknowledged that in the short term, the country will have to rely more heavily on polluting coal and natural gas to meet its energy needs, even as it takes steps to massively ramp up electricity production from solar and wind. Germany aims to be carbon neutral by 2045. Mm. And they'll do it, I Mm. bet. I bet they will. The question of what to do with highly radioactive material accumulated in the 62 years since the country's first reactor started operating remains unsolved. (laughs) Efforts to find a final home for hundreds of containers of toxic waste have faced fierce resistance from local groups and officials. This will never not be a problem. No, but they could ask Holtec what to do. Holtec, right up on the Hudson River at the old Indian Point nuclear power plant, is planning to dump the nuclear waste into the, into the river. Okay. Well, um, I'm, ser- I'm serious about that. They're planning to dump the nuclear waste into the Hudson River. Okay. Yeah. All right, so there's one final comment by an official. It doesn't identify who it was, but they said, nuclear power supplied electricity for three generations, but its legacy remains dangerous for 30,000 generations. Wow. There you go. And that's the yeah. problem with nuclear. There you go. Okay. This is an article that I'm really interested in. It was produced by Beyond Plastics. It is actually a report written by Andrew Craigie. Uh, And the title is New Report Raises Questions About Safety of Using PVC Plastic Pipes for Drinking Water. The Biden administration and Congress is providing $15 billion to municipalities that need to replace toxic lead service lines. Yet the EPA has not offered guidance 
around what piping materials should be used to prevent homes from swapping one problematic material for another. The report focused on the health and environmental risks associated with the production of vinyl chloride, which is mostly used to make polyvinyl plastic. Production typically takes place in low-income communities and or communities of color in Louisiana, Texas, and Appalachia. Vinyl chloride was classified as a human carcinogen in 1974 and has been banned for use in hairsprays and cosmetics. But 49 years later, vinyl chloride is still widely used in packaging, including food packaging, I might add, building materials, toys, and pipes that deliver drinking water to residents every day. The report raises concerns for state and local officials who would determine how to replace lead pipes in their communities, as well as for the residents who will be using the water that flows through those pipes. It identifies recycled copper and stainless steel pipes as preferable alternatives. Although these materials are slightly more expensive than PVC plastic, the majority of the cost of lead service line replacement projects is from labor and digging up streets, not from the cost of the piping. You know, it's interesting that they've identified, they've said, well, the EPA hasn't given guidance as to what to use. But the vinyl industry oh, yeah. has lobbied to make sure that PVC piping has to be included in the bid spec that these municipalities right. are putting out. So as they spend this $15 billion, mm-hmm. they have to put out these requests for you know contract. We were, we're looking for somebody to replace these pipes. And PVC has got to be considered. Well, most municipal contracts call for the lowest bidder to win. Right. And PVC is right. going to win every right. time over these other things. Right. And they so, are boldly stating that 80% of the new pipes that will replace the lead pipes will be made from PVC. I mean, that's so well, arrogant. Patty, it's I a, mean, arrogant. It's a moneymaker for them. Look how much money we can make. Right. All right, what else? All right, so as with all plastic products, PVC plastic contains chemical additives, some of which are known to be toxic to humans and many of which have yet to be tested for safety. Just as the chemicals in food packaging can leach into food, the chemicals in PVC pipes will leach into drinking water, including endocrine-disrupting chemicals that can harm children and developing fetuses at very low levels. Additionally, there are no existing drinking water standards that factor in the cumulative burden of exposure to these chemical mixtures. Dr. Shauna Swan, professor at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai and author of the book, Countdown, How Our Modern World is Threatening Sperm Counts, Altering Male and Female Reproductive Development, and Imperiling the Future of the Human Race, issued the following comment, and this is the end of this article, quote, Exposure to PVC and the toxic chemicals used in its manufacture is particularly risky during early pregnancy when they can interfere with the body's own hormones and permanently disrupt reproductive and neurodevelopment. At no time should these chemicals come into contact with our drinking water supply, end quote. Shanna Swan was our guest on Green Street a few months ago talking about um, sperm counts and how they were going down, you know, worldwide. Yeah, and she was absolutely right. I mean, she was talking about how delicate that that developmental process is and how, you know, just minute interruptions yeah. in the normal, normal progress of, you know, of a human body being made, right, can actually have stunning and irreversible damage yeah. done by exposure to these chemicals. All right. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome.
That's going to do it for our show today. Special thanks to our guest, Dr. Stephanie Seneff, our news editor, Ellen Weiniger, our engineer, Leo McGarry, our social media director, Donna Moss, our editorial director, Josh Lyman, and our engineer, Sam Seaborn. Next week, we're very excited about the debut of our new show called Grassroots, Living Healthy in an Unhealthy World. We're still going to feature the top experts in the field of environmental health and bring you the latest news, but with some new features and things we think you'll really enjoy. So thank you for listening to Green Street News, and please join us next week for our new show, Grassroots. I'm Doug Wood. Patty and I will see you right back here next week. Thanks for listening.